All right, we are looking at James 2, so turn in your Bibles there, James 2, and I want to read just the first um, few verses. We're going to go clear to about, well, the end of chapter 2, but I'm just going to read 14 to 19 to kind of give an orientation for what we're going to talk about. James 2, 14 to 19, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We'll stop there. Uh, Today we're looking at a very difficult passage that has created a great deal of turmoil. Great deal of turmoil for Christians because it has created such a, a confusion over justification, what justifies me, what makes me right before God, faith or works. It also has created uh, confusion amongst non-Christians, and it has given them reason to reject Christianity altogether. At surface glance, it appears to be a conflict by what James is saying and what Paul tells us in Romans. I want to put the two primary verses that has created this angst or this confusion. First, what Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. Justified by faith. And then James tells us, you see that a person is justified by works. And not by faith alone. James 2.24 Today, we will discover that there's not a conflict, but unity. We will get back to the message, but first, to help keep me on track, this is the outline, three key words that I'm going to use to move through this passage. Uh, One is just the challenge, the challenge of communicating the message, and then the examples that we have at the end. So first, the challenge. And how the challenge in communication enters into this process of God trying to communicate His Word so that we understand. You know, when God decided to become a man, Christmas, taking on human flesh, we call that the Incarnation. And when the perfect took on human flesh and he came down to this earth, he submitted himself to a fallen people. What that meant, that which is perfect, succumbed to accusations against him from a trial. It led to his crucifixion as a criminal. That was the cost of the incarnation, that he became subject to that which is imperfect. 
We could say God's message to us became incarnated. In that he had this message that he wanted to convey to the world, and he chose to use a medium, uh, a language, that humans developed. And within that, language is imperfect. It is flavored by cultural biases and sinful people. You don't have to doubt the message, but how human language has created confusion. So the, the message is one thing, but the confusion that creeps in through this medium of language has created this conundrum that sometimes we as Christians are in and that have been fueled of accusations by non-Christians that the Bible is contradictory within itself. So one challenge in communicating accurately is that sometimes in human language, words can be ambiguous. Meaning, one word can have more than one meaning. God is not being ambiguous. God is not. His message is true. His message is clear. But through the medium of human language, it can become ambiguous to the listener. That is just a reflection of the limitations of human language. And it creates a challenge for us, folks. Let me give you a couple of examples of the challenges we face in everyday life. The first one will really be helpful to me. It's a picture of my trailer. Yeah, you notice my, my trailer. My trailer has two doors to it a front door, and a back door. My wife and I disagree, and this is where you'll be helpful to resolve our conflict. My wife and I disagree about which door is the front door and which door is the back door. It has created a great deal of angst. Now, I know to you it's obvious that the front door is that which is positioned more towards the front of the trailer where it hitches onto the pickup. Yeah. And the other one would be the back door. But now Connie says, that's crazy, Ed. That's not the front door. Would you ever invite guests into the front door and it enters into your bedroom? The front door is where you welcome guests into the living area, where you're going to entertain them. For her, it's obviously the front door is the back door. <laughs> and the back door is the front door. Uh, do, you, do you see the confusion? I'm, I'm sure you guys can laugh at examples. Here's another one that we went through as a church family, our church sign. Faith Free Church. And as culture changed, this idea of free really became ambiguous. Well, it was always ambiguous, it was just less noticeable. 
it, you know, some people would, would say free, I mean, you don't take an offering. So it, it was uh, uh, around monetary. Uh, others, oh, so you can kind of do whatever you want, you're free. Or free could mean, if you look at history, how the church was subject to hierarchical structure. And there was a day where some Bible-loving, Bible-teaching people wanted to study the Bible in their homes, in groups. And the hierarchical structure, I think it was the Church of England, said you would, have, you would be disassociated from the church. You would be free then from the church, and they chose free from that kind of uh, um, control. And so that's really the name. But how many would do the um, investigation as to the, the exact meaning that was within the church sign? So our affiliation has not changed, but for the purpose of communicating to a culture, we refer to ourselves as faith church, even though nothing else has changed doctrinally or with our affiliation. So now we come to justify how James and Paul are using this word. Justify can be used in two ways. If you owe a person a debt and you pay it to them, you have been justified. In other words, you have been made right with the person that you owed the money to. You have been justified, made right. But justified can also be used to prove yourself right. In other words, you'd be saying, uh, what is the evidence that I have been made right? You know, if you are a parent and you spank your child, for something your child has done, something wrong. And someone asks you, why did you spank your child? You probably would feel the need to justify yourself. Prove yourself that you were right in the action that you took. You were justified in what you did. Here is the evidence. Being justified and giving evidence that you are justified. Now let me say that again. Being justified and giving evidence that you are justified are two different but closely related statements. So let's look at the message and try to make this even more well, clearer, clearer. What is James saying in contrast to what Paul is saying? Whenever there is apparent conflict in Scripture, and as Christians, we need to acknowledge there are some difficult passages, some passages just like the uh, conflict that Connie and I get in as to which is the front door and, and back door, you need to deal with them and learn how to communicate um, 
more effectively. So whenever there is conflict in Scripture, the first thing we need to acknowledge it. But then we need to really investigate the context. And then collaborate with all of Scripture and see if it bears light to clear up what might be an apparent conflict. So first, let's look at the context. Who is each of the authors writing to and the purpose that they're writing? First, Paul. Well, I I like this phraseology. Paul explains the gospel. James assumes the gospel. Did you hear that and catch that? Paul explains the gospel. James assumes it. Boy, just read the opening chapter of Romans. The whole book of Romans is a a treatise on on salvation. A very theological, doctrinal um, work that gives clarity as to the different aspects of salvation. But James, um, Paul says in Romans 1.13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Uh, Paul is an evangelist. So his communication, his style, his language is with that in mind. And so when you read Romans, particularly that verse, Romans 3, you have to take that in mind. James assumes the gospel. He's writing to believers who have already made a commitment to Jesus Christ. We saw that in the first study in our um, journey through James, particularly in verse 2 and 3, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He calls them brothers. They're already followers of Jesus Christ. They're already committed to the gospel. So now James is explaining to them what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ in daily life. What it looks like when you face trials. What it looks like when you don't want to listen to something, being a hearer. What it looks like when you uh, have a tendency for bias and want to show favoritism. These are some of the issues we dealt with already. James is supporting the teaching of Paul regarding faith and works. Because many were abusing the teaching of Paul. You see, the nature of mankind seems to be to go to two extremes. Almost in every area of life. Two extremes, but religiously there were two extremes. The legalists on one side... And then those who took um, the teachings of Paul as giving them license to sin. Now, Paul's message was neither of the two extremes. 
But people always have a way of taking truth and twisting it to justify their sinful practices or their personal persuasions. James is writing to believers already, so he communicates in a way to them that conveys to them the importance that while we are saved by grace, as Paul spoke about, works do matter. Don't just disregard them. Don't just slough them off under an excuse of, well, I'm in the grace of God. James states it in a way knowing it would get their attention because he knew how people were taking Paul's message. We know this from Acts 15. In Acts 15, it's what sometimes you will hear referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Acts 15, 1 or 2 tells us, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there were certain practices, the Old Testament law, that after Jesus Christ came, the Jews converted still required that as an indication that they have been saved and that they are followers of Jesus Christ. And it became a real conflict within the church. And so they had this council we see in Acts 15, 1-2, to deal with it. And we see from the context of Acts 15, James was there. James was well aware of the tension, the two extremes. James was aware of the abuse of Paul's teaching and how some were disregarding the importance of works. James agrees with Paul. And Paul agrees with James. In Ephesians, where it says, uh, we are saved by grace, lest any man should boast, it goes on to tell us that you have been saved to do good works. You are not saved by good works. You are saved to do good works. Some credit Martin Luther, others um, uh, a patriarch before Martin Luther's time saying something to this effect. Um, you are saved by faith, but your faith is never alone. Another way of saying it, you are saved by faith and faith alone, but faith is never alone. James is telling us how you know you are saved, not how to get saved. Works do not save you, they demonstrate your operating principle in your heart. They reflect what is in the soul. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't get the cart before the horse is not saying the cart is not important. Don't get works before salvation 
is not saying that works are not important. Because again, works are important because it reveals a deeper issue that God may want to penetrate and have you wrestle with. And that is idols that we may have in our heart. The unity between Paul and James comes really clear, beautifully in Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So faith works. Faith works. It's working through love. True faith, real faith, a faith that is alive, will be demonstrated not by perfect love. Okay? Not by perfect love. Don't do that number on yourself. Not by perfect love, but a growing love. A heart that is being transforming, that is learning how to love. A love that is informed by Scripture so that you reflect God accurately. That's why we have in uh, James 2, 15 and 16, it tells us, well, let's start with 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have a faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. If If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? You know, do you have a a sensitive heart as a follower of Jesus Christ that when you do see the poor, well, I think we're all in a quandrum. How do we actually help them? That is a significant discussion someplace else. But I think what, you know, I want this scripture to penetrate. Do I even have a a, a, uh, sensitivity a a response towards the poor. And I think we do. I don't, you know, we do. Is it growing? And to some degree, God, what are you calling me individually, us collectively? Is there something here, God, that you're calling us to? A faith that is alive moves from a mechanical faith to a... um, Organic faith, or, or I'm sorry, a faith that is alive moves from a mechanical faith to an organic one. Early on in one's spiritual and emotional growth, a mechanical love is necessary. I mean, you think about it, parents. How are you going to ter- teach your children how to love their sibling? You know, can you call up from within inside them and, and say, I just want that nature to be in you and, and just love them? Maybe some have a personality that it would appear that they are uh, easier to uh, be loving, but it be, it's a challenge for them. And often parents to try to uh, bring them to the point someday that it does rise up from within, you have mechanical structures to try and teach them about love, such as, uh, okay, uh, Betsy, you stay in your room until you apologize to Susie. 
or you can't eat dessert until you know we, we until you express your uh, sorry and that you love your sister or brother. And these are important. These are valuable. They're necessarily early on, but the danger is that you can have a mechanical love and it not be love at all. See, God is calling us, this transformed heart through James is calling us to move from a mechanical heart to a transformed heart that genuinely, organically, where the Spirit of God works within you and you just have a natural response. To love somebody, to love a stranger, to love a poor person, to love a difficult family member, to love when you're in conflict with somebody. Have you ever done a loving act for a person while harboring anger towards them? Anybody? A few smiles, yeah, nod your head, yeah, I know, my goodness, you know, if you're married, I know you have. If you're not married, you get an exemption from this. Uh, no, but you have an employer. You have an employer. But within the marriage context, I can relate to that because Connie caught me red-handed with this one time. Uh, um, I, early on in our marriage, nothing recently, of course. <laughs> early on in our marriage, I remember one time doing the dishes and I was... They had to be done. I mean, I just couldn't take it anymore. But <laughs> I was not a happy camper. I was not. A, and um, it must have been evident by the clanging of the dishes. I, yeah, I mean, I tried to muster up love. Uh, um, you probably, you might have been in the house and you might have interpreted it as, man, Ed's loving. Look, he's doing the dishes for his wife. And you would not have heard the little... <laughs> So, washing dishes can appear loving, but true love, genuine love, a love that's alive, a love that gives life to other people was not in my heart, certainly. See, God wants both loving acts that show, and that these loving acts that show give evidence of what's in the heart. To help us to have a faith that is alive, that ex expresses of what's going on in our heart. He gives us uh, two great examples in Scripture at the very end here. And um, let's look at those. The first one is Abraham. Let me just read it, James 2, 21 to 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See, what saved him there, we see in the latter part, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His action, his deeds, showed his great love for God. His trust and confidence in God. That even his own son, he did not put as an idol to replace God. But he could only love his son appropriately if he was willing or if he understood 
that his son was a gift from God and that God is supreme. It's not a statement of um, not loving his son at all. What Abraham shows is this incredible love that goes beyond, that is willing to sacrifice anything because he knows that God is good and that God's in control. And even though God has asked him to do a most difficult thing that from our culture and time seems very strange, it reveals, it pulls a curtain back from Abraham's heart and shows you and I what is in there in terms of his devotion and love for God the Father, that he would trust that God was going to provide a way, even in difficult circumstances with his own kids. So Abraham serves as a good example of love. Acts of love that you and I need to be growing in. To continue to grow in. To where I can wash dishes and, and be happy. Truly, that I can minister and serve my wife, regardless it's the seventh time in a row I've done him. <laughs> uh, that, that was just the human flesh. Rahab, uh, the other example, verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. See, what was the evidence of Rahab's uh, salvation in God, her belief? Because she heard as uh, she was a, you know, interesting, Abraham, the patriarch, the highly regarded, and here we have the prostitute. But both are being used as an example of the importance. Works don't save you, but works are important. Abraham, love. And Rahab, we see incredible courage. She just knew very little about God that she had heard because of uh, how people would travel through Jericho where she was. And she heard about the God of the Jews and responded and put her trust and belief in him. But that wasn't the end of it. Because spies came when they were going to go in to take the land. And they were, the authorities came to her. Where are the spies? And she hid them. She had incredible courage. Her works that we see what was in her heart, the incredible courage that she had in God the Father, that she was willing to take a stand there and hide the spies, and then release them so that they could go in safety and fulfill the mission that God has given them. Her courage demonstrates what she believed about God. Your works and actions don't make something true. Your works and actions don't make something true. They only reveal what is true. Your works 
pull back the curtain to your heart, revealing what you and I believe about God. They are important because they do reflect the Creator. God has saved us not by good works, but for good works. A faith that is working in love. So, as a church family and one fellow member with you, let's continue to grow in our faith in God, expressing it through creative, life-giving works that God has ordained for all of us. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for the challenges we have. Uh, First, uh, you know, one, this idea that you have created us for good works. We should feel esteemed that you have chosen to use humans to accomplish things for your purposes. So God, help us to get out of the way, the obstacles, the roadblocks, the excuses, uh, uh, the fears um, that prevent us from you just uh, taking over. Teaching us to uh, love and express that love with people we didn't think we ever could. That we don't have to think in terms of enemies anymore. So God, thank you for this challenge you give us. Thank you for James and Paul how united they are, that you have found a way that we can understand clearly what they both are saying. Amen.